Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and on the show, we talk about how the complicated world of healthcare is, and we talk about the 30,000 piece puzzle. So each one of our guests shares a piece of their expertise with our audience and listeners, and I am very happy with today today's guest. So would you take a moment to introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm Katya Sadel Chipola. I am the CEO and founder of Hopper Health, which is virtual primary care specifically for neurodivergent adults. And I'm building Hopper because I myself am neurodivergent. I am autistic and ADHD. Okay. And did you know your whole life that you were neurodivergent? So I knew and it was suspected when I was a child, but at the time, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I was not allowed to have an autism diagnosis because I could make eye contact and I did well in school and I had friends, but I always knew I was different. And interestingly, I have two younger brothers. Both of them are also neurodivergent. They were diagnosed as children with many of the same behaviors and symptoms that I have. I was not diagnosed as ADHD until I was in my 20s when I went back to college and I was really struggling with you know school and figuring things out. And then I ended up being diagnosed as autistic in my late 30s when I was going through the process with my daughter of what was going on with her and, you know, how could I best support her? So it's been a really interesting journey of kind of figuring out what is my identity, who am I, and re-examining kind of the entire context of my life in, in context of this diagnosis. I can only imagine. So can you share what that experience has been like? Like how did it shift your view? you of yourself and your place in the world. It has been incredibly validating to finally be able to recognize who I am and why am I the way that I am. I think the other thing that's been really valuable and important for me is now that I know this about myself and it's confirmed, I mean, unfortunately, having diagnostic confirmation in U.S. healthcare is an important thing to have, especially you know if I'm looking for supports at work or, or in a medical care setting. But it's been a wonderful way to find community. And that was something that was so challenging growing up is when you are someone who you know you're different, you know that you're putting a ton of energy into compensating on your own behaviors and appearance and ways of living in the world, finding community and realizing that I'm not alone 
I was isolated my entire life growing up because I never had that connection to other people who are like me. And so it's been really funny. I mean, as much as like there's this perception that TikTok is for kids, I love it. I learn so much. I connect with so many incredibly brilliant, cool people. And we share experiences all the time. It is so validating. It is so great. So that's also my plug for please government, don't take away TikTok. I I couldn't agree with you more. I've learned so much about TikTok, but a lot of people have ADHD and or autism Mm -hmm. diagnosis that they've learned from TikTok. Yes. Like as using that application, they have figured out that this is, that they fall under the category of neurodivergence. Yeah, well, and I think even, you know, beyond the sort of diagnostic process and core identity, the world is not built for us. And the medical system doesn't really offer us any supports, especially as adults. Like once you're an adult in the US, you're kind of on your own to figure it out. You succeed or fail. I mean, I have really struggled with employment in my far past. I've struggled with not making very much money, being underemployed, financial insecurity. Those are all things that are very common. But what I've really learned from things like TikTok is like sensory supports and ideas like Brushing my teeth is uncomfortable. Someone suggested a new brand of toothpaste. It's fabulous. Or like the audience can't see, but my glasses actually have kind of a rose tint to them. That was actually something that I learned from another autistic person on TikTok that when you have light sensitivity as one of your sensory sensitivities, having a tint actually, I mean, I'm at a conference now under fluorescent lights all day. I don't feel like I want to throw up or go home and take a nap. I mean, Those are the kinds of things that no provider is sharing with us. There's no context that's being shared. We really have to sort of crowdsource our own well-being. So before we get into what Hopper does, I kind of want to have a better understanding of what it's like to travel the world, like be in the world as a neurodivergent and how does that differ from somebody who's not? And like, how is the world set up in a way that is essentially Mm, not to your benefit, right? Like you're having to navigate through, like you said, it's not built for you. But in what ways? How could I visualize that? Yeah, so I think some great and obvious examples right now are what we've seen from the pandemic of people really preferring the shift to remote work. And a lot of that is because their time and energy can be invested in the things that they need to do to make money and survive Whereas the balance of their time, they can spend it how they need. They can set up their environment in a way that is comfortable. That's something that neurodivergent people have been needing and wanting for a very long time. But it took neurotypical folks and kind of the popular support of everybody saying, hey, actually, this benefits all of us. And I think that's something also that's interesting that a lot of people aren't aware of is a lot of the things that we need, we're the canaries in the coal mine. So it's not necessarily that our needs are fundamentally different from other folks. It's that we experience more intense distress or we have to expend more energy to get through the day and do a lot of the same activities. And so if we are struggling with a work environment, with a communication style, with healthcare, with other things, it's likely that neurotypical folks are struggling too. It just might take them longer to recognize that that is something that is costing them energy and time, whereas we fundamentally can be disabled by those things. So like lighting in offices is a great example. Natural light, incredibly important for me. But, you know, it wasn't until I was a VP at a corporation that I was allowed to have an office with a window. And so if you can't 
camouflage and sort of gut your way through climbing the ladder to get to a point where you even have the ability to ask for some of those things, it's really, really difficult. And that's why, you know, a lot of neurodivergent folks end up job hopping or end up being self-employed or working in the service industry or doing different things that maybe make it a little bit easier for us to accommodate ourselves. But unfortunately, a lot of that flexibility often then comes with making less money, having less financial security. So tell me about Hopper Health. What do you guys do? So we just launched two weeks ago. We are focused on virtual primary care, specifically for neurodivergent adults. And the reason that primary care is so incredibly important to us is because obviously in the U.S. health system, like many others, primary care is intended to be a patient-centered medical home. Like that is the actual term that the government uses when they're talking about what primary care is. But home has to be comfortable and home has to reflect your own experiences, preferences, and needs. And the vast majority of primary care does not do that. So there's a few things we do that are helpful. One is just being virtual. So it means the patient's sensory environment can be whatever they need it to be. You're not having to struggle with executive functioning challenges of picking up the phone and calling the office or having an uncomfortable conversation because someone doesn't understand you. But there's other things that we do. So for example, we have peer navigators who are themselves neurodivergent. And we know through lots of data and lots of studies that show that neurodivergent to neurodivergent communication is incredibly effective. Neurotypical to neurotypical communication is incredibly effective. But where it tends to fall apart is neurotypical to neurodivergent. Historically, neurodivergent folks have then been labeled as having communication deficits, but it's just a style mismatch. And so when we have folks who are themselves neurodivergent having conversations with our patients that are very high stakes and challenging about health issues, it's so much easier and more comforting to have someone that understands this, has been through a lot of the same things. The other thing that's really important about primary care is neurodivergent folks do have a lot of co-occurring health conditions that going back to, you know, talking about TikTok and crowdsourcing our solutions, we have to do that on our own. So I, for example, in my 20s, went to primary care, was getting fantastic or what I thought was fantastic care in Chicago at like a nationally recognized academic medical center. And I was complaining to my primary care provider about I'm having upset stomachs, things don't feel quite right, I don't know what's going on. And I was told repeatedly it was anxiety, I should try yoga, I need to meditate, it's probably related to ADHD, maybe it's stress at work. And it turns out that I ended up hospitalized for severe Crohn's disease. Oh my gosh. I mean, and these are the kinds of things, but that took years. Like, so if a provider had understood how I as a neurodivergent person communicate my symptoms or even just the different prevalence of certain conditions within the neurodivergent population, that might've been caught at a point where I wouldn't have to be on infusion medication for the rest of my life. And it becomes a public health issue Because one, there's a lot of neurodivergent people in the U.S. I mean, at least 20% of the population is neurodivergent. It's, I mean, so when we think about it from a health perspective, more folks than type 2 diabetes, more folks than cancer diagnoses. I mean, it's a lot of people. But also, I think there's this sort of, we need providers to be aware that our health needs are fundamentally different. It's not just about communication and sensory issues. We may present differently We may experience different conditions more frequently, or we may, pain might be reported differently. I mean, the pain scale for us 
is useless. Because Tell me about that. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> the pain scale, when you go to a doctor or very common in the emergency department, you show up, they ask you, you know, what's your pain on one to 10? One being nothing at all, 10, the worst pain you could possibly imagine. I, as an autistic person, am already struggling mentally with what is the scale rated against? How should I report my pain relative to other people's pain? What is the number that represents my accurate experience for me? And my pain threshold is incredibly high. One, because of just sensory and interception differences, but also like many neurodivergent folks, I have a connective tissue disorder, which also means that I feel things a little bit differently. But if providers don't understand that, I might report my pain as a seven because I also want to be extremely honest and extremely direct about my experience. But if I say it's a seven, they may be like, okay. And then I don't get any pain medication, even though I'm experiencing pain. Or I may say, you know, it's a 10. And then I get argued with because, well, but you said this other thing was a 10. And I, being extremely literal, I'm like, but you asked me what's the worst pain I can imagine today. This pain is worse than that pain, so now I can imagine more pain. It's a 10. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Really interesting. It can become this very sort of like exhausting round and round conversation where, you know, we do tend to be very educated on our own experiences in a very deep way. I mean, understanding my autistic experience has become a special interest for me. I know far more than all of my providers historically until I started working with Hopper providers who many of them themselves are neurodivergent. And so having that sort of internal experience to recognize when a patient might be struggling with, gosh, I'm not being literal enough or I'm not giving enough context or I'm not listening to what they're saying and, and asking clarifying questions, a lot gets missed. I'm curious if somebody ex thought about themselves, if they suspected that they might be neurodivergent, how is TikTok their answer? Like, where, where, how, what should they be looking for? Or if they suspect they are somehow on that spectrum, what does that look like? Yeah, so it sort of depends on what is the end goal. Uh -huh. Because for a lot of adults, if you suspect that you are neurodivergent, you do the research as we often do, you start to find community in online spaces or elsewhere, and that becomes your identity. For many people, that's enough because there's no like, public health benefit, there's no resources, there's no nothing that's special for us. Really the place where a diagnosis becomes incredibly important is if you need work accommodations, if you need legal protection, if you need accommodations at school, in a setting that requires that medical diagnosis and documentation, then unfortunately you have to enter the world of trying to get diagnosed as an adult, which very few resources, difficult to access, and often not covered by insurance, even though exact same diagnostic process for children is covered. Mm -hmm. It's also a beautiful thing in a lot of ways. There's something about neurodivergent people that are very, they have different sets of skills that are very useful and beautiful and all of these amazing positive things. Like, are there... Yeah. How can we kind of encourage more of that or welcome it more into the world? And it sounds like that is what you are doing just by nature of your work, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I will say from the perspective of someone who now employs neurodivergent people and is building my business very intentionally to accommodate a lot of different kinds of folks, unfortunately, we as employers need to be 
both very trusting of our employees and very flexible and adaptable. And those are often things that do not go together with working in a business. So I think there's a need for, you know, the more bureaucracy, the more we struggle, the more everyone is supposed to be the same, the more we struggle. And so there has to be this, there has to be a reckoning, frankly, with how we think about managing people, with how we think about developing people, but also, and this is something I've experienced directly, the anxiety that is inherent in so many corporate cultures, although it's rarely labeled that, that is the piece that makes people so concerned about conformity. Because if I step out of line, what will happen? But for me, stepping out of line might be dressing in clothes that are comfortable for me versus wearing the exact same navy blue suit that all my peers have on. Or being able to express myself differently in a meeting, maybe sometimes you know, written communication is better, but everyone wants to pick up the phone and have a quick chat. Mm. There needs to be more, the flexibility is incredibly important and it's, it's hard because that's not a silver bullet, right? Like that really takes a mindset shift from a leader's perspective. There's two things that you're saying that are, one is the literal aspect of it, of just everything needing to be literal and trust, right? Yeah. And so those two combined, I would almost think it would help increase trust if you know that neurodivergent people are very literal because they're going to have a hard time lying to you. It's well, and I think the funny thing is like we can absolutely lie, but usually comes at great cost to Mm -hmm. us because we are doing things, we are investing energy in protecting ourselves. Like in the instances where we do tell mistruths, it usually is through a survival instinct or some sort of self-protection, as it is for most people, right? But the cost to us, I think, is much higher. But what's interesting is, and and I've found this frequently, is I don't invest energy in being passive aggressive or trying to send some underlying message in my words. And so when I say a thing, I mean it. And that is the piece that neurotypical people struggle with the most. They want to find meaning where I am not delivering it. Yeah. And so oftentimes in those types of communication challenges where I struggle the most is the other party just straight up doesn't believe that when I say, nope, I don't have a problem with that or, oh, make that one change and we'll be great. Like they just want to look for more that's not there. And so it also then becomes on us as neurodivergent people to be like, why am I having to defend the words that came out of my mouth? Because I meant them and they are the truth or the words that I wrote. And it's not to say that we can't be abrasive or difficult or, I mean, we're people, we have a variety of personalities and good days and bad days. But that, that is the fundamental difference is like, we do tend to be very direct. We prefer it. We love it because then we don't have to invest our energy in finding the hidden subtext. So again, something that benefits us actually benefits everybody. Sure. You know, it reminds me of um, Amy Schumer. You know, she's married. Yeah. yeah. And I love the fact that she's just like, you know what? My husband can't lie to me. Like he's not like he yeah. he engages with her in a way that he's not putting her on a pedestal. It's not hot air. Like it's just a very direct and honest relationship. Yeah. Obviously, we don't have insight into it, but like from yeah. the outside, that seems to be the case. So I will speak to my relationship with my husband. I mean, very similarly. So he and I met on Bumble as adults, as we do in our forties. Yeah. Yep, like that was <laughs> that was the way, and. 
By our second date, I remember just being, he was actually the first person that I dated seriously after having an autism diagnosis and kind of really thinking through my identity. And I remember just thinking like, I'm just going to tell him and see how he responds. And so I was like, hey, you should know I'm autistic. Like if you want to ask me any questions about that, whatever. And he was like, well, I mean, I don't really know anything about autism. The only thing I know is like I saw Rain Man. So I might need to learn a lot. And I was like, okay, great. Well, I like you. So I'm willing to spend the time. And that was it. Like, it's so nice to be able to just have that sort of straightforward back and forth and have that be appreciated by someone who I spend all my time with. Yeah, that sounds really refreshing. Yeah, it's <laughs> fantastic. I mean, all of the games of dating go completely out the window. And I think that was something I also really understood about myself is, you know, being a single parent in my 30s, dating, trying to sort of figure things out. All of the camouflaging that I was doing at work, I was also doing in my social life, I was doing in my dating life. And it's just exhausting. And it ends up not being a solid foundation for relationships, either work relationships or, or social relationships. I think we are close to our time, but I would like to help our audience understand where they should go, how, if they wanted to work with you or get involved with Hopper, who should get involved with Hopper and how would they do that? And also, can they connect with you as an individual? Yeah, absolutely. So I am very involved with my community and audience as it relates to Hopper, but also just on topics of neurodivergence. So folks can always find me on TikTok if they just search my name. That's that's what it is. I love to engage with people there. But also on a on a Hopper level, so our website is hopper.health. There's no.com. Anyone who is neurodivergent, we are right now in New York and California. We're expanding to five more states on Monday. So if folks live in those states, they can absolutely sign up for Hopper and start to work with us and get support from our navigators right away, regardless of, you know, if they have an urgent need or ear infection or sore throat that they want to talk to the doctor about. But also we are building a wait list for navigators and providers that would like to work with us because that's been a very common request through our social community of like, I love this and I want to be more involved than just kind of sitting on the sidelines and supporting So we also are standing up a careers page for folks who would like to be a part of what we're building. Fantastic. Well, I will absolutely be following you on TikTok. Awesome. (laughs) And I will include all that information in our show notes. So thank you very much for being on the show today, Katya. Thank you. This has been really fun. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.